Welcome back to the Remember Resilience podcast. Today I'm joined by Army veteran Mark Smith. On the 3rd of July 2011, the path for Mark seemed clear. He had survived tours of Bosnia, Iraq and Afghanistan and had returned home to his wife and son unscathed. He had just been made section commander. Then stray bullets during a training exercise in Canada changed everything. In the blink of an eye, Mark lost his leg, his military career and the life he'd known and loved. Yet in a way, this was only the beginning. Mark found solace in fitness and training and with sheer grit and willpower, he underwent a stunning physical transformation. He was crowned Britain's strongest disabled man in 2016 and 2017, competed in the world's strongest disabled man competition multiple times and won disabled strongman events at the Arnold Classic in 2017 and 2018. However, Mark then hit rock bottom. After chronic and constant pain exasperated by a failed operation, Mark was frequently wheelchair bound. He was also distraught at learning that the soldier and father figure Spence, who saved his life after being shot, had taken his own life. Mark knew that his mental health was spiraling to dangerous levels. He finally agreed to counselling. This was a turning point for Mark and paved the way where he would establish and captain Chelsea Football Club's first amputee football team, where he spent several seasons developing and growing the sport. Now Mark has began a coaching career with mainstream teams at MK Dons, where he has passed down his knowledge and expertise not only of football and sport, but of resilience, adversity and mental strength. Though Mark's achievements are formidable, it is his mental resilience which shines through Honest, down-to-earth and moving, this podcast reflects on the importance of determination, compassion and positivity, brimming with humility and humour. Even though virtually, um, as you're a man that deserves a big introduction, to be honest. I've read your book twice. Um, I've got it here, Strength of Mind. Give it a shout out on the camera. Uh, it's an amazing story. It's one of the best books I've read in the last year or so, and I think it's just because it's so... It's so humble, do you know, it's down to earth, it's moving, it's a book about your life, it's a book, a book about your strengths, but a lot of it's your weaknesses and how far you've you've came along. Um, but with each guest, if that's all right, if we can take your story and go back to how it all began, where you grew up, how your childhood was, and we'll work through and uh, tell the listeners what you've achieved with your life, which is amazing. Yeah, uh, thank you, mate. And like, yeah, firstly, obviously, thank you for invited me on I, I really appreciate it and it's um it's humbling to know you've read it twice I don't think I've even read my book twice <laughs> <laughs> I read through book. it to make sure there were no spelling mistakes and stuff but yeah yeah thank you um yeah that means a lot it's uh yeah obviously in, in terms of the book and everything I sort of put into it I um I've been very fortunate with the things that I've done over the previous few years since I lost my leg to have had people that have wanted to follow my sort of story and my my yeah. journey as an amputee um but i never thought for a second that i'd end up putting it into words or that people would people would want to read it so it's always it's always really nice when you speak to someone that has actually read it i still find it surreal um but yeah like i said obviously i felt putting everything down into words was its its own I'd, I'd already sort of had counseling in the few years previous um yeah. but to put it all down into my own words and get everything off my chest because although i'd had the counseling 
a lot of what was discussed only really I knew and my wife knew. Whereas yeah. then to put it into words in a book, then everybody and anybody knows. Yeah, uh, of course. So you're opening yourself right up, you know, and you're just waiting yeah. for uh, waiting for obviously the feedback, but also waiting if you're going to if you're going to open up all wounds, both with your own thoughts and obviously people reading it that you refer to and stuff. Um, yeah. Obviously, the book the book starts away from basically your family life, primary school ages. Um, on reading that, it was it wasn't the easiest school years for you, to say the least. Yeah, um, for one reason or another, um, sort of middle school and stuff were absolutely fine. I'd I'd always grown up playing football. Like football was my life from sort of seven eight years old all the way sort of through my childhood so that was always my my go-to my release sort of six yeah. seven days a week i was on a football pitch in some capacity um but then it it's what i associate all of my sort of happy memories with growing up um in terms of sort of school once i got to secondary school um similar to in the in the military i suppose when you turn up on a new course and things like that you try and be the grey man, you keep your head down yeah, um, yeah. and just the longer you can go under the radar, the the, the better. Um, yeah. And obviously when you go up to, to, to high school, I took that same approach. Um, but I suppose at that age, it can be seen as a, a weakness. Um, yeah. And I suppose that, that got picked apart. Um, so, yeah, I mean, from from the age of sort of, yeah, 13 to 16 um school was not an enjoyable experience yeah at the time um but i i look at it in hindsight and i think it it was character building it in the long run I, I certainly didn't feel like it at the time but it it did me good because it gave me a resilience uh, a stubbornness um just and 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 a real will to want to get away from where I lived. Yeah, um, to, to go. Was it just? Sort of, but to, to tell us more about was it just? Um, was it just the usual school bullies? They just seen you like you say you wanted to keep your head down. You weren't getting involved in anything, and, and and they just see you as an easy target. Something that they wouldn't say now. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely fueled what I've done the past few years. I suppose, yeah. but yeah, I suppose I was I was an easy target, and um. Yeah, your your easy pickings in in school and that environment, but it it was more um, the the sort of physical aspect of it is most of the time sort of walking home from school. Uh, if you're out sort of socialising after school, um, yeah, there, there's not many football photos of me growing up where I haven't got a black eye or a missing yeah. tooth or so. Um, but yeah, at the time, you sort of question a lot of things. Um, I probably still do question it because, like I said, I, I suppose I was very sort of quiet and, and it was only really the football pitch where I sort of came to life. Yeah. Um, because it was a separate group of people from different schools and stuff, so you, you're a different person. Um, but, yeah, I, I had I had a group of friends, um, but obviously I suppose at the time they were predominantly a group of friends where if push came to shove, I was left on my own. Um, right, okay. So, yeah. yeah. So it, 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 it took a lot. So then 
trust people as well in that sense of and it's and it's something that stuck with me and and the military in particular is the complete polar opposite obviously like in in that in that school environment if the same crowd came around the corner and you know thereafter my my school friends were going to sort of step aside and, and leave me yeah. to it um yeah. and i remember how that obviously felt and i always sort of whenever you sort of got into into aggro in the army which obviously you know it's part and parcel of the job like it happens yeah, on your, your, your nights out and stuff like remembering what it was like to be left on my own to sort of face that it's always been one of those things where no matter sort of the situation like i'd, I'd never leave anybody else in that position so yeah, yeah and I'd, i've tried to sort of use it as a positive use it as motivation and and um yeah I'd, i suppose even now at sort of 38 39 of in the they're, they're always there in the back of your mind of i always still have to prove myself but maybe i owe some of the the things i've been fortunate enough to do to that group of people because they they gave me that that stubbornness that and fire and, yeah. yeah yeah no definitely i they fueled your fire later on in life to show basically that you were everything that they thought that you weren't at the time yeah you know yeah. um so take us back obviously you touched on that that you just wanted to get away from the area that which you lived in you weren't particularly close to your your family that you lacked the kind of uh, male role models um in life and do you think that's part of the reason you sought out the forces do you think that you wanted to be looked after and feel like a belonging to a group of a family a new a new family a new brotherhood almost yeah yeah definitely that's that's how i would describe sort of some some of the blokes i've served with is is a family um yeah where you feel uh sort of valued and, and equally having i i found um always having older male role models so i found obviously those that when you go through basic training the instructors and people like they've got life experience and yeah. you know something about them and you think i can learn from that man yeah. like so i found myself from sort of day one in the army like there was people i looked up to and aspired to be like and um obviously when you're in training it's probably not reciprocated <laughs> they, they, yeah, they're, they're, they're not they're not a father figure in terms of they'll have a nice conversation with you but yeah weirdly it's a relationship where you you hang off every word and you look up to them um but they yeah. can't show you any of that back do you know they need, no, they, no. Need to, <laughs> they need to keep you at that arm's length you know even if they the odd time they slip up and be nice to you and you think oh fuck he's he likes me yeah i've taken this and reminded you that actually <laughs> no, yeah. didn't, didn't that much. <laughs> uh, so tell us about your you're your obviously um applying for the forces applying for the army uh, it didn't go to plan first of all did it no, so I wanted to join, obviously, finishing school at 16. I wanted to join straight away. Um, but if you're under the age of 18, you need sort of basically your parents' consent. Uh, and my my mum didn't want me sort of joining um, because I'd made it clear I, I wanted to go off. And um, a lot of people sort of look at the forces as going and getting a trade, becoming a mechanic, yeah. an engineer. And I was very... I want to join the infantry i want to be sort of an infantry soldier um so yeah at 16 
um for one reason or another at school i seem to have a a, a talent for design and stuff like that but it was never really like an interest of mine and that's what my my mother wanted to push me into was like sort of graphic design and stuff and it's like yeah it's not really what i want to do and i um so i i went on this college course uh like a national diploma in graphic design and even on my interview i i sat there and i said i want to join the army like i mm -hmm. i did everything i could to like <laughs> just to steer everything away. <laughs> um and yet somehow I'd, I, I got a place on the course and yeah like obviously after the first year you have some of the students you're on the course with that are going off to look at universities and in my head it was like i'm just biding my time until i'm 18 and i don't That's need true. that consent um and then uh yeah I'd, I'd i'd gone through the sort of paperwork side of it in the careers office and then i went and um maybe it was a delayed reaction to obviously everything in school but i ended up with really bad acne at sort of 17 and um so i ended up on these really strong this really strong medication and so when i went up for my first medical uh i failed it because of the medication and this oh, obviously yeah. the skin condition so then i had to wait six months of being off this medication then i went back again for selection and uh i failed it on a heart murmur uh so i got referred to a heart specialist and they said it would have just been nerves like your heart's yeah. fine um give you the okay yeah and like it was just like every time i got a setback it it made me want to join even more um so when i went up the third time up to litchfield and i got past the medical and it was like wow i don't really know what happens now for the next obviously couple of days you do all your yeah. tests your team building all that like command tasks and stuff and um yeah i wasn't really sure what to expect past that but it was like right i've done I've, I've done nothing but fitness for the last couple of years so i'll this this bit will be fine um so once i got the medical out of the way and i i got my sort of start date and obviously the regiment that i'd i'd chosen and yeah then it was like this is my my ticket sort of to a new yeah. life yeah, yeah. And I, we spoke just briefly off camera there that, that basically I, I took your book on holiday with me um, to the Isle Sky, and there's a comment from your father who, who we should say um, you get on kind of better with now, but he basically says to you, um, you're not good enough to be a soldier, you'll be back in a week. And I can mm -hmm. remember, I just remember, because I knew your story, although I hadn't read the book, I, I obviously read the synopsis and I'd followed you online, and I thought, I fucking I lost the head on holiday. I, I, I threw my book down and my wife was like, what's the matter with you? And I was like, can you believe Mark's dad just told him he was never going to be good enough to be in the army and you'll be back within a week? Who says that? And she was like, yeah. hey, calm down, calm down. And I just think, you know, there were you, like you had experienced a pretty shit childhood uh, through school years. You had a, a father figure that, that wasn't wasn't protective in any way of you. You were going out to seek that level of protection yeah. and brotherhood, and there's he, there, there's him still kind of stamping all over it. Whether it was meant like that or, to, or or not, or it was just a kind of old school comment to try and tough you up in the future, we'll, we'll never know. Uh, I just remember that one comment stuck in uh, stuck in your head, um, but you proved them wrong. It, yeah, it, it, that, that same comment obviously stuck in my head. I can still picture it now, like where we were stood and stuff. We were in the garden and um, 
yeah, and for obviously the, the basic training was 26 weeks up in Catterick. Um, and every time there was a, obviously there was a, there was a lot of days when you're like, oh, this is, this is yeah. hard craft. Um, and all I, all I ever thought was like, there's not a chance I'm going back home to be greeted with a, almost like a smug, yeah, told I, you I can, wouldn't make it. Yeah, totally um, picture that. Totally picture yeah. that. So that the the times when you you you're doing your bayonet fighting and you're going through the assault course and you're covered in sheep's blood and water and you've not slept in 36 hours and in them moments is like I'm not. I'm like <laughs> I'm gonna be the smug one on the passing out parade. Yeah, and and yeah, to be fair, I I was obviously when you march over to your families after you've yeah. you, you've passed out of basic training and. I did. I marched over straight away, and I, went, I told you I'd do it. Um, and obviously, like to this day, he sort of says, "Oh, it was just to motivate you." But right, okay. Um, yeah. But at, at the time, um, it was just another person that had no belief in me, and obviously, no yeah. one in school thought I would be able to join the army and stuff. And so, at that moment, at the end of that twenty-six weeks, is like I've I've done it. Like this, yeah, this is going to be my career. Yeah, definitely, and then you must have had flashbacks to the, all the faces, obviously your dad included, but the faces of the school bullies and the people that had, had made your life a misery, and just thought, "Fuck you!" Do you know, you've yeah. pro proved uh, I've proved you wrong, and uh, you're yeah. more of a man than than they'll ever be. Do you know what yeah. I mean? So, yeah. um, absolutely no regrets, obviously. So, the regiment that you that you joined was the Grenadier Guards. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a frontline in infantry. Yeah, but they also have their ceremonial duties as well. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we, um, everybody sort of recognises us as obviously the tunic and bearskin, the red, red tunic, big bearskin, stood outside Buckingham Palace, Windsor yeah. Castle. Um, so funnily enough, I, um, I when I went into careers office and I said I'd. I'd I'd like to join an infantry regiment. I didn't have a specific one. Um, and it just so happened that the uh, the Lansant that was on the desk that day was a grenadier. And it was like, oh, right. you know, we'll put my Perfect. regiment down. And at the time, it was still VHSs. It was still videos. So it was like <laughs> a couple of videos to watch yeah. and stuff. And, um, and then, yeah, you start looking online. You're like, wow. Like, um, so I, I do feel very fortunate that I didn't just join any infantry regiment to have that that dual role and that responsibility of the ceremonial duties when you look back now and and to think like obviously to take my children to see buckingham palace and sort of and they see the soldiers out the front and you go yeah that's what, what i used I to did. do yeah, yeah um so now it's definitely something you look back and you go i was i was privileged to get to get to serve in a regiment as prestigious yeah. as that and was a certain it was a certain soldiers that that would um they basically joined to be a ceremonial soldiers that was their thing they, they didn't want to be like frontline infantry um whereas your preference was to go out and do what you signed up for basically in terms of being being a soldier a frontline soldier uh, did you get yeah. to choose between the two to a point um so we have a a ceremonial company uh so they're non-deployable so they'll they'll still right, go overseas yeah. for jungle training arctic warfare training all that sort of stuff so they'll do the training side of it and that's um that's a stepping stone into battalion which where obviously you deploy on operational tours yeah. um 
some lads, be it family men and stuff, may end up back there through choice, and and they'll yeah. opt. You know, they might have done two, three, four operational tours and go. Actually, I'm ready to just have a bit of stability now. Be based in London, do ceremonial duties, and so you you, you do have yeah. the both. Uh, whereas the battalion, the, the first battalion, is a fully deployable infantry regiment. So from time to time, you'll cover the ceremonial duties, but predominantly you're away, sort of Afghanistan, Iraq. Um, so I quite liked that there was the two sides to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so you enjoy the ceremonial side as well. To me, to me, that would be a, a nightmare. I can I can't imagine how uh, how uncomfortable uh, that would be. But obviously, you you enjoy that to an extent as well. I, I think so. It's, it's it it wore thin sort of in the summer months. Uh, so you'll you'll mount Queen's Guard for for twenty four hours in the summer, forty eight hours in the winter, um, and. There'll be times when your rifle company is being bounced back to back and you'll end up doing 10 days of on and off Buckingham Palace. And obviously each time that you mount, your kit has to be immaculate. Yeah. And so obviously you, you come off the guard and in that 24 hours, you're rehearsing to go back on guard uh, on the parade square, plus getting all of your kit back up to standard. And yeah. um so then it tests how proud you feel to do it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I can imagine. Oh, I can imagine. In those moments. Um, yeah. But yeah, obviously things like the Queen's Birthday Parade at the time, obviously like Troop yeah. in the Colour and, and things like that. Um, that's that's an amazing sort of spectacle oh, to be a part massive, of. And a, a massive event to be part of, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, um, do you know. Um, so moving on, can you, through your, your military career, you, you then um, you're your goal was to serve your, your goal was to go on an operational tour which you've done yeah. a, a good few of i believe yeah yeah um so obviously being in nymagen company straight from training i'd done my sort of six seven months of, of ceremonial duties and then like i said obviously yeah. that acts as a stepping stone into the battalion um and one morning on on roll call sort of register they they said there's there's four spots to go out to Bosnia. Um, who wants who wants to so go and join battalion? And it was like, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll go. Yeah. Um, and then about two days later, I was I was flying out to to join. So the regiment had gone out two weeks prior to that for a seven month tour, um, and then I, we were going out to join them. Um, but battalion at that time was a sort of a, a big scary place again somewhere you turn up you keep your head down you do as yeah, you're told um, yeah. you, at that at that time you had a lot of blokes from sort of the the late 80s early 90s that had done northern ireland tours and just big horrible scary men like yeah. <laughs> and you're like a like hardened soldier <laughs> yeah you're a young like fresh-faced 19 year old um, it's funny because i, I take it that the military is oh, in the early years certainly you obviously join your initial training and you progress through the, the stages of that and then as you progress through the stages of your training your initial training you obviously see um, earlier troops who you're a yeah. bit more senior to and then yeah. you pass out and then you think great and then you go to battalion and you're straight to the bottom again yeah. and then you need to work your way back up then you get promoted and you're straight to the bottom again so you know you're yeah, always it's, it's you're always fighting the people down. above you yeah totally. yeah but yes yeah, um, it's, it's it's obviously you turn up you're the new lad so 
you get all the heavy kit you get all the shit jobs like everything that needs doing the new blokes are doing it um but weirdly like obviously because i was away for christmas and new year as well so that's the first time i hadn't been home for christmas and i at that time obviously i was 19 single no wife no children no and it was like I don't need to be yeah um i i loved being away it was again battalion because it was sort of older experienced blokes just so many more role models to sort of look up to and learn from and um and yeah it's, it's like if i if i keep my head down here it in a way it's sort of the opposite to school rather than being seen as easy pickings it's you sort of earn a better reputation just by doing what you've been asked to do. And yeah, that's um, it. So, just learn, as soon as they learn to trust you, you know, and then you can start, yeah. you can start um, gaining some respect. You give it out, you get it back. Yeah. Uh, I take it. Do you, uh, you, you met a lot of uh, really inspiring people through your military career? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. many people that you, you cherry pick their qualities from, uh, yeah. especially sort of the, the leaders, the, the lance corporals the lance aunts the platoon aunts where you go i i think like i've got a lot of admiration for him i love the way that he does this that and yeah. when i eventually get to that responsibility i'd like to be just like him yeah. uh yeah. and then on the flip side of that you do have ones where you go when i get when i you know when i'm a section commander i'm gonna be nothing like him nothing like him yeah, yeah, it's so you, true. Obviously, the the people that you kind of surrounded yourself with uh, throughout, obviously your career, some some were forced upon you in the sense that they were colleagues and whatever else. But but they they, they had a huge influence on your life and shaped you as a person. Do you know you're you're not a you're nothing like you were when you were a kid. Do you know what yeah. I mean? You've been shaped so much by your, your military um, experiences and the people that you've met. Um, so yeah. moving on, obviously moving on through the Bosnia, I served in Iraq and Afghanistan as well. Did yeah. you have family at that point? Had you met your wife and had your kids at that point? Yeah, I actually met my wife. Um, so obviously part of when you're on an operational tour, you'll get two weeks R&R where you're sort of flown back to the UK. Um, yeah. So in the in the January, um, whilst I was out in Bosnia, so I'd, I'd done Christmas and New Year over there. And then I had two weeks back in England uh, in the January, so uh, 2005. Um, and my last night out, um, I, some of my sort of mates from back home, we went out for a drink before I went away for another three months. And I met my wife on on a sort of night out. Um, so obviously, yeah, sort of saying to her, um, you know, we sort of swapped, swapped like numbers at the time still still at the time writing it down on a bit of paper and, um, <laughs> 10 pence um, a, 10 pence a text message yeah yeah that's it yeah just to make sure it was actually like her phone number and stuff and um and then it was like yeah i'm i'm going back to bosnia tomorrow morning yeah, uh, yeah. so but it it almost added like um something a bit different and and fresh i suppose because our only way to communicate was once a week in bosnia you got a, a phone card so you got 20 minutes once a week yeah um and then the rest of it was was blueies so uh forces letters that you you oh, could write to each other and so um, it was old school. 
yeah yeah just yeah, just brilliant. getting to know each other through letters yeah. and stuff and oh, that's amazing though like how can i mean how far how far detached is that from from where yeah. we are now do you know, oh, yeah. right away, you know have you still got yeah. them yeah yeah so yeah. My, my wife's kept them all in the loft like all of our letters from from bosnia brilliant. iraq afghanistan they're all kept them all but she used to sort of spray them with perfume or send me out like she'd sort of say is there anything you need and um yeah i'd get like these morale but like lads would always get like morale boxes from friends and family yeah. and stuff and you'd have like bags of haribo and things from back home that you couldn't get in the sort of bases out there yeah. so she used to sort of put me together a parcel and send it out and um well, yeah yeah, yeah nice. well, she must have done a good job because she's <laughs> still there. Still yeah, still here. Yeah, was it 18, 19 years later? Yeah, she's, uh, still, yeah, she's still there. That's brilliant. Uh, so, obviously, I'd imagine um, your regiment being a, a, a front a front line infantry regiment, especially well, probably in Af Iraq as well as Afghanistan, but certainly in Afghanistan, um, the shit hit the fan there a lot for the forces. Um, front line is that did your battalion or did your regiment experience their, their fair share of of loss and injuries to your colleagues yeah yeah it's um it was just sort of almost like commonplace at, at that time really? uh, so i went out to afghanistan in 2009 um and yeah just obviously we lost on that particular tour five grenadiers um and that was at the time when when a, a lot of it was ieds um yeah. so yeah sort of seeing lads sort of lose limbs and obviously like lose their lives and yeah, um, yeah yeah not not a nice day maybe part of it but you've done your country you served your country and um you decided that promotion was maybe an order you had been getting good feedback from your from your NCOs and stuff, and you fancied a shot at, was that becoming sergeant, becoming corporal at that time? Yeah, so I, I went out to Afghanistan as a Lance Corporal. Uh, so after uh, we'd done um, an overseas sort of stint in the Falklands, and I'd I'd then um, earned the opportunity to go on a promotional course after that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I went out to Afghanistan as a Lance Corporal, um, and it was one of those tours where I really sort of embraced it. it in in my mind I'd always wanted to be like I said a, an infantry soldier so yeah. Afghanistan um maybe now as you're older and you see it in a different perspective I don't know if I'd have that same adrenaline that same desire to be on yeah, a tour like that, especially yeah. sort of having a family and but at the time it was like this is everything I wanted to do um and so I sort of fully embraced every single opportunity to be in a firefight, in a, in a contact. In, in those situations, it was like almost Just become so like a like an adrenaline junkie. I think yeah. a lot of lads became addicted to the the feeling of, of being yeah. in contacts. Um, and you'd almost go out on foot patrols or, or vehicle patrols. And if it didn't end in a contact, you'd see it as a wasted patrol. You, you almost, yeah. yeah, you almost sort yeah. of almost chasing that high throughout the tour um do you think that's because they say that you, you don't actually appreciate life until you've been so close to death yeah do i think so like they, you have moments where you're like you come back into camp and you go that that was a 
That was we, we got lucky there. Um, yeah. And it's only when the adrenaline wears off. I'd, it happened a, a few times where you have that moment to yourself and almost like involuntary, you end up just bursting into tears. I, I remember one yeah. one particular one, a, a night patrol. Um, and there was a particular route that the, the British forces used that was always being IED. So we, we were basically going to set up a an overwatch um, to basically sort of catch the Taliban in the act of, of sort of laying the IEDs in the road. Yeah. Um, and we got ambushed ourselves on, on route to it. Um, and that particular one, I was point man. So I was at the very front of the patrol and we got sort of pinned down out in the open. And that was a night where on the set of orders before we was going out and they, they said, obviously like Corporal Smith, like point man. And I remember just, I always seemed to get this sixth sense of something was going to happen. Um, and and I said to my mate, as soon as the orders finished, I was like, I got that horrible feeling. Um, I said, I'm, I'm just going to use the satellite phone. I'm going to phone phone my wife. And she was in the cinema, so <laughs> she had no signal. So I just left her voice message because obviously you couldn't say, I'm about to go out on patrol. Um, yeah. So, yeah, everything was just like, I've got a bad feeling about this one. And then no suit. We'd been out on the ground maybe twenty minutes, um, and then yeah, we we got ambushed ourselves. And there was myself, the platoon commander, and another young lad stuck out in the open, ever so slightly in the dead ground. It had turned out, um, and it was one of them instances where eventually, when we got back into camp, other lads are like, "How the fuck are we like yeah. still in one piece?" It was just so scary, real, so close. yeah. And that just that particular sense. night. The, once the adrenaline had wore off, I was on the Sanger. So obviously you, you get back to so everything you have to man yourself. So even though yeah. we'd been out on that patrol, still expected to do the sort of the midnight till 6am shift on the Sangers. And and I remember being stood up there about two o'clock in the morning, just sobbing. And it was like, what, like what's going on? Um, so you, yeah, you'd have times. It, I think it was just all the adrenaline's left you and you just oh, feel drained and exhausted. Yeah. Um, just a, just a, such a such a mix of emotions. I mean, I can only imagine. I've never served in the forces, but I can only imagine like being going out to do an ambush, but then getting ambushed yourselves, and then you're just basically facing death. You know, yeah. look, yeah. looking straight down at the, the barrel of a gun, and obviously a, a, a slice of luck meant that did you all did you all survive? Did you all come back? That particular one, yeah, yeah. and it. Right. And it was weird. That's that's the first. I put it down to like a nervous reaction, um, but then it became like a trait throughout the tour. Where in those moments you just start giggling, like it just. <laughs> it seems you one of these guys. That, <laughs> you one of these guys that start laughing at funerals. Yeah, I, I probably <laughs> would be. Yeah, like it, it just in in those moments. Like I'd look around and you'd see the other lads sort of you know, trying to sort of dig into the sand with their eyelids and stuff. And yeah. I'd just start giggling. I'd find something, whether their helmets tilted off to one side ever so slightly yeah. or, you know, a, a facial expression. And I'd just, I'd just get a fit of the giggles. And it was like, just a cool and when you tell people that. like that back home, like obviously I, I wrote, I kept a diary in Afghan so that I'd never told my wife anything on the phone while I was out there. And it was a case of I got back and, yeah. That's that's yours to sort of read when you want. Um, and she couldn't believe, like, do you mean you were giggling? And so I, I said, like, I always just got a fit of the giggles in those in 
in the hairiest moments i found the funniest but i yeah i didn't know why um, As a, i think that's just purely a, a, a total coping mechanism do you know if yeah. you don't laugh you're going to cry and you did cry sometimes but other yeah. other times you were able to see the funny side it, bank it and then move on deal with whatever yeah. comes comes next the, the next again day um so tell us about your trip to canada not a trip to canada but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we won't call it that yeah so i'd i'd um obviously off the back of afghanistan where it had been seen that I'd, I'd had a good tour uh i was offered the opportunity to go on my next promotional course to become a lance sergeant uh so this meant four months in brecon uh doing sort of tactics skill at arms so learning to become like a weapons instructor and all that sort of stuff and um obviously at the time my wife so we always said we'd wait until after afghanistan to to start try for a family um so my wife got pregnant in the in the leave after afghanistan and then it was like well the the promotional course you know it's it's a better income for the family it's it's more stability it's it's more responsibility in the job i i then had years of working under people and it was like i'm ready now to be that i've had enough experience now to to lead i want to be a, a leader um so yeah i'd gone on the course and day one obviously they sort of said you know has anyone got any sort of compassionate and I was like my wife's literally nine months pregnant like um so she gave birth to my my eldest three weeks into the course um and i still had the rest of the course to do so i barely saw sort of my my son at, throughout that course yeah. came back to the regiment um and then my company sergeant major said you're going out to to canada for three months um so i said I've, I've not had any paternal leave so i got a couple of days at home with my my son and my wife and then went out to canada so canada was to be our uh pre-deployment training to go back out to afghanistan the following year and i loved the the exercise part of it ourselves the first six weeks because i was a lance aunt, i was a section commander yeah. i was leading from the front then and it was like I had the opportunity to put everything into practice that I'd learned on all the courses and and it was like I similar to obviously the coaching now where it's like I love this responsibility yeah um, on it. yeah yeah I, I really sort of enjoyed passing on my experiences to sort of younger soldiers that were going on their first tour and stuff and but then once our our six-week exercise had finished um, those of us where I'd done the skill at arms qualification and stuff uh in breckham it meant i was then qualified to not only sort of teach weapons but also oversee live firing ranges so all the way up to sort of company level so around about 100 blokes sort of covering vast distances um responsibility yeah yeah what age were you here uh so canada i would have been 26. it's massive Um, responsibility for someone so young yeah I know when, I, was, I was talking about it with a, another lad I served with the other day that actually when you think of the level of responsibility we had at such young ages okay. and you look at the average 20 to 26 year old as a civilian now and the experiences we'd already had it yeah, yeah you sort of you you're sort of older beyond your years oh, I suppose, in yeah, yeah you're forced to grow up very fast and make like yeah. such important decisions 
yeah yeah ones where obviously people's lives are literally sort of your responsibility and but i i quite liked that it was almost that you become even at such a young age really like a that father figure yourself the one that i'd looked up to amongst others you now have a responsibility to be that for younger soldiers um so yeah i I then went on to join uh, a group of safety staff which was made up of um corporals lance arts platoon science from all different regiments i'd I'd never worked with any of these lads before and the opportunity came up to work on the armored infantry obviously we were dismounted so everything we did was on foot um and it was like i'll i'll do it um and and you think always the first one involved yeah it's it's a different experience you get to go around on on vehicles rather than on foot everywhere it's like I've just been on foot across the prairie for the last six weeks like this might not be so bad um and then i got to just pick people's brains so some lads were out there on two-year postings nine-month postings and so i was that probably that irritating one that just i wanted to be a sponge and just learn work um and then to become eligible for sort of an operational tour to be classed as deployable you'll work your way up using blank ammunition up to sort of company level attacks and then go on to live firing so using live ammunition where you're firing at at wooden targets metal targets all that sort of stuff um so the regiment i was i was overseeing and doing the the safety for on the ranges they worked their way up going down individually in pairs fire teams sections platoon um and then they'd, they'd worked up to a platoon attack range that uh started off um with uh tanks so we would follow in the vehicles when they dismount out the back we dismount and follow uh then they had trench systems to clear bunker positions so you're there overseeing them um and then in the morning we'd done it with their other platoon and then you push onto the compounds but in the morning I'd stayed with the fire support group, so the the heavier weapons, the the, yeah. the sort of the the general purpose machine guns and things like that. So I'd stayed back in this fixed position. Um, but there'd been a few. There always comes a point with officers that oversee ranges where everybody wants the most realistic range, um, and sometimes sort of safety gets sacrificed for realism a bit. Yeah. Um, and there'd been even as we had gone through in the six weeks ourselves as, as the exercising troops there'd been a couple of close calls um and it has its place in terms of you quickly switch on you do everything properly because the risk is there um but this, this particular range just felt it was there was too much risk um and was your sixth sense yeah. kicking in again? Yeah. Yeah. And and that really? morning, yeah. um, I'd sent my wife a text with the time difference, just saying I got that same, same horrible feeling today. Really? Um, and she she kept the text message and because I was in the back of the vehicles going from the the barracks out onto the prairie and and I I just sent her a text before the signal went saying I've just got that same horrible feeling today. Um and we'd stop for lunch. And I'd sort of raised my concerns, but ultimately I was a Lansant working with higher ranks from different regiments, know your place sort of thing. Um, 
and the temporary staff, people like myself, there was always a shortage of kit, radios, high visibility vests. Um, the safety staff was supposed to be in desert camouflage as opposed to sort of greens, DPM. Um, so I went onto these ranges and the bigger the scale you go, so by the time you get to a platoon attack, you're looking at 30, 40 soldiers going down a range. Um, and if you're not in tune on a radio and stuff, it's very easy to lose sort of situational yeah, awareness. Of you control that? Yeah. And, and so I was going down these ranges without a radio, without uh, a high visibility vest, without sort of desert camouflage. And just, it was like, there's a lot of failings here, but again, it's that I need to wind my neck in and just sort of keep yeah. my head down. Uh, so we went down in the afternoon uh, except the section I was following this time didn't sort of go firm at the trenches, but pushed on to the compound. Uh, so they'd sort of stacked up on the outside of the building to go in and clear. And I would have been due to go in with the last assault in pair to clear the final room. Um, but where I happened to be stood on the day as the first pair went in, the rounds came through the wall, which was because obviously they're, they're designed to get shot to pieces for six weeks knocked down and yeah. replaced they were just sort of mdf buildings um yeah. so the rounds came straight through the wall and i had my back to the wall um so i took i took six six gunshots to my right glute that sort of exited via my groin hitting my femoral artery on the way and then one to my shoulder as well um so obviously at the time the range was stopped um and then that's when I became heavily reliant on those I was working with that day. That's that's crazy. Um, obviously, hitting hitting your your your, um, your artery just meant the blood. You you were losing blood so so quick. Um, yeah. Were you still were you still conscious at, at this point? Did did, did you yeah. realize what was happening? It's um, obviously had that happened in Afghanistan. There's a slim chance I would still have the leg. Uh, so you obviously. When it comes to the um, the Chinooks and that coming out to take you back to sort of Bastion, if that's in Afghanistan, yeah. you'd have the golden hour. So as long yeah. as you're on the operating table in the hour and then you had like the platinum 10 minutes. So yeah. if you're treated within the first 10 minutes, you got a great chance yeah. of surviving. Yeah. Um, but because it was Canada, there was a lot of miscommunication. And so I had no pain relief throughout the duration um there was no uh chinooks or anything like that um the heli they originally sent out they couldn't get my stretcher onto and i spent 90 minutes on total on the ground uh with with no pain relief waiting to be airlifted to hospital um and then yeah it was just solely down to the lads that i was working with that day and the experiences they'd already had from other operational tours that they improvised and, and kept me alive um and i yeah had no no sort of pain relief and but stayed stayed conscious throughout but there were moments where um i think had i embraced the feeling I'd, i probably would have gone there and then but you just even though there was no pain relief and i had tourniquets on my leg my leg was being kept elevated i had hemorrhage control packing out my shoulder um my lung had collapsed, so that I had a, a drain right. pumping my my sort of right lung, and um, and then at, at one particular moment, 
I just felt so warm and relaxed and all the pain stopped almost sort yeah. of like floating as if you've been given morphine. Yeah. Um, and it was that I'm going and I know I'm going. Um, and then, yeah, one of the lads gave me a good sort of slap around the face and stuff and, and brought me back round and, um, that was that was you that was you basically your body was pre preparing itself to, yeah. to die and yeah. your mind thankfully was strong enough and probably your colleagues there um, that were working on you and helping you obviously realized that you were starting to slap away so a good yeah. slap around around the head how was your i mean how was your wounds six six uh is this an assault rifle bullet so it's like a light machine gun uh so right, 5.56 okay. ammunition um, right so it's huge rounds yeah so the, the and and there was exit wounds as well obviously they would have been they would have been massive how how did they did, was tourniquets enough to stop that cat, catastrophic bleed uh no no so um one of the lads had applied the tourniquets but i was still obviously with an arterial bleed still yeah, losing course, a lot of blood. Yeah. um and he had improvised and had clamped off my artery uh yeah. with a with a paper clip um of all things um and yeah yeah just that that sort of moment of improvisation sort of kept me just kept me alive your life yeah and did things obviously start to speed up in terms of getting you out of there and getting you some some serious treatment some life-saving uh, treatment uh once once i was on the heli uh once i was on the helicopter on the way to the hospital um I suppose I made the mistake then of thinking that's it now I'm going to be all right. So I relaxed. I was on there with yeah. a medic. Um, and yeah, I, that's when I, I flatlined. Um, so I was gone on the, on the heli on wow. the way to hospital. Um, so all in all, it took just over five minutes to resuscitate me. Um, so what you using, using what means like a, a defib or was it? Yeah. Yeah, so the the, the long-term implications of that which are obviously less visible are that uh, i ended up with something called a hypoxic injury so a lack of oxygen to the brain um right, okay so yeah my short-term memory is absolutely horrendous um <laughs> But good excuse for forgetting everything bro. It does, yeah i've got post-it notes and stuff everywhere and, <laughs> but yeah in the early days i could get away with if the wife had asked me to do something and it didn't get done it's like well now there's notes everywhere to remind you yeah yeah so there's no forgetting now but um yeah i i'm just really grateful that i worked with some phenomenal people obviously there was yeah. phenomenal sort of medics surgeons all along the way and um and then obviously concurrently to that happening my wife's getting that dreaded knock at the door that all sort of military wives have um to say say what's happened um and of course she was on the other side of the world it wasn't like it happened yeah. in that country you know yeah jesus um, um and probably is more of a more of a shock because obviously the, the times when i'd got on She'd dropped me off at Bryce Norton to go out to Iraq to Afghanistan. And yeah. Um, there's an expectance there that that might be it. Yeah. Whereas obviously Canada, it was like, see you in three months. You survived three three tours and, and war zones, but yeah, <laughs> it's a, a training exercise in Canada that, that nearly yeah. cost you your life. Well, how did this decision come to 
to amputate? Um, so I had been on life support for a couple of days and I had um, I still had the leg at that point and my wife had been flown out um, yeah. and at the time obviously they my regiment wouldn't tell her if I was sort of alive because they they weren't sure if I would still be alive by the time she got to I'd, I'd been um, transferred from from Medicine Hat Hospital closest to the prairie onto Calgary uh, so she flew out to Calgary um and every time they tried to sort of bring me off the the life support I'd, I'd go again and basically the the drains that were attached to my leg were, were just it was all black fluid um yeah, okay. the, the leg was was starting to kill me and it was starting to give me organ failure um yeah. and then eventually when they, they brought me off the life support and sort of stepped in almost instantly I there was a you know, just a moment of confusion. I remember sort of laying there thinking, my wife's had her hair done. Uh, that was the first thing that entered my mind. <laughs> she had her hair all done while I was away. Um, so I asked her about that. And then this this surgeon stepped in and sort of told me the seriousness of my injuries. Um, and that if they sort of didn't amputate my leg that day, it was highly unlikely that I'd see that day out um just because of the organ failure that I was starting to get and um in that time they'd been pressing my toes and stuff and asking if I could like feel it and I was like, oh yeah yeah of course I can and oh, really it <laughs> out he'd been, yeah he'd been doing that for ages and I yeah, yeah. um but I I'd obviously had friends from the previous couple of Afghan tours who had lost legs and yeah. The, those who had kept their knee joint um, tended to make a lot more progress and some of them could stay in and still be operationally deployable um, as long as they could match all the meet all the fitness requirements yes. the below knee lads could stay in uh, whereas I'd seen sort of friends had lost their knee joint as well struggle just sort of walk with a limp seem like they're in a lot of pain all the time yeah. on a lot of medication and um I actually refused the amputation at first because they said I would be above the knee. Um, and yeah, I knew okay. I knew that that would bring an end to my career. Yeah, there's just so so many limitations would be put on you. Just just yeah. that lack of mobility, do you know? The, the, yeah. Yeah. So you fought against it until you were just over. Basically, it was life or death decision, really. Yeah, yeah. My wife gave me a stern talking to and told me to stop being so stupid. And yeah. then, obviously, I, I sort of agreed to it. And within hours of the first stage of the amputation, I started to sort of pick back up and it, it obviously it was needed and, but I had to yeah. keep going back in to take more. So they were trying to sort of beat the level of infection. Oh, uh, okay. So it, it meant that they took my, my adductor muscles went, my hamstrings were gone. Um, three of my four quads they took. Uh, so I've, I've only got sort of one essentially working muscle and, and half my glute. Right, okay. so what what was left they weren't sure i would be able to have a prosthetic leg because there's nothing the, to attach it to really. yeah, yeah um so yeah on the the one hand you're sort of laying there and you're like well i'm i'm still alive i'm gonna get to see my son again and and all this sort of stuff but on the other hand it's like that's my career done yeah. um so yeah it was a, it was a lot of a lot of sort of tears in in that 
well, ultimately, I, I spent a further two weeks in, in Calgary and then they, the MOD flew me back to the military ward in the Queen Elizabeth in Birmingham, uh, yeah. where I spent a further nine weeks. Um, and But even, even um, on that flight, it was sort of touch and go and I was back in intensive care when I got to Birmingham. And um, one of the things um, that was was a sort of private thing until i wrote the book really was that i almost lost everything that makes you a man um yeah. <laughs> there'd, there'd been a lot of complications down there obviously with the blood flow and everything yeah. like that and i mean it had swollen to a size to to be proud right. of uh, yeah it was like a two liter pepsi bottle by the time but but it was it was horrendously painful and my imagine. wife had mentioned it to the doctors when i got into birmingham and they basically said i'd had blood clots and i was on the verge of losing that as well um Jesus. so I, and i think had i lost that i don't know if i'd have wanted to pull through yeah uh, i think tapped you over yeah yeah whereas it's like i mean even when i was shot one of the lads cradled that and showed me that was just to reassure me it was all still there <laughs> really like, yeah that, that the things that guys do in the heat of the moment <laughs> yeah it's Amazing. he knew in that moment as long as he knows that's there everything yeah, is we've still got a chance of him fighting yeah. on. <laughs> oh, um, that's crazy um so obviously let's not forget about your shoulder you were shot yeah. in the shoulder as well yeah. um how's what was the seriousness of that did that kind of recover did that still need operated on i take it yeah so for the first yeah. few days i hadn't moved the arm and they thought that the round had hit the nerve so they thought i would end up losing the use of the arm um and i was more worried about that uh i was thinking of things like being able to pick obviously at the time my son was only five six months old yeah and it was like you know you sort of dream of sort of being able to pick him up and um so i was more concerned about the arm than the leg because i'd had friends who had lost legs and were now walking on prosthetics and on running blades and yeah. it was like i'll walk again i don't need to worry about that like um so it took a while for me to move the arm um but it day to day like sort of living obviously cosmetically it doesn't it doesn't look great but um it more affected me sort of later on when it came to things like strongman that's when it really sort of hindered me and held me back um but yeah i i just see it as i'm grateful i kept the arm um yeah, that, that would have been much much harder much tougher to deal with um obviously you'd kind of moving on from from your your multiple near-death experience but you actually nearly experienced death several times yeah um, you know obviously mentally you would have been in such a difficult place you know you've you're, you're now an amputee you've got your life ahead of you that you're facing you your love of football your love of sport your love of your career the outdoors you know obviously all these things are going to be going through your head about how your life is going to change um how low did it go for you mentally um i would say my time in hospital and then obviously later headley court when you go through your rehabilitation um you're surrounded by squaddies who ultimately have all kept their sense of humor. There's yeah. everybody's got a gratitude that they're still alive and that it could have been worse. And for yeah. a lot of those lads, those that were blown up, they 
in that same uh, sort of situation, nine times out of ten, someone had died in that same IED blast. So for them, they, they were the lucky ones. Yeah, and yeah. and then looking around, the, obviously the lad opposite me in hospital was a triple amputee from an IED, and the lad next to me was missing both his legs. The lad opposite was due to have his leg amputated, and I'm looking around and go, I. I yeah this I've got nothing to complain about so when you're around those people and they're positive yeah it rubs off um, well, of course so yeah. you have that sort of positive attitude and, and you're all grateful that it could have been a lot worse um and obviously I'm looking at them going I've still got three of my four limbs um so in that moment you feel positive in that sense but the football was playing on my mind a lot and my career because I never had a backup plan. I'd always yeah. intended to do a, a full career in the military. Um, but the, the low points probably didn't come for another three, yeah, another probably three, four years or so. Yeah, um, yeah I think when you're, when you're going for your rehabilitation, because I was so driven on, I'm going to sort of, I'm going to walk, I'm going to run, I'm going to do this, that, and everything was a, a stepping stone. Again, yeah, and then shortly after coming out of hospital, um, my wife fell pregnant with our youngest son. Um, and obviously, because of all of the issues I had down there, they didn't know if I'd be able to have any more children. Um, yeah. So, um, to then obviously have that, I then had something else positive to look forward to. So we then just had lots of positives, really, in the first yeah. two years or so after losing the leg. Um, but being sort of discharged from the army and and then handing in your ID card and stuff and you're no longer serving, you're a veteran, then the reality hits you like, what am I going to do for the next 40, 50 years? And I didn't even in my sort of two years at Headley Court, there were some lads that were like, I'm going to go off and do this now and I'm going to retrain as this and that. And that's when I started to feel lost. Um, there was no, no other plan. You, you just, your purpose had, your purpose had disappeared from you. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, I needed a challenge, something that was going to get me out of bed because it, it gets to the point where you're like, what's apart from having a young family, what's the point in getting up? Like, what am I, what's my, I think every sort of man needs a purpose. Oh, um, definitely. Yeah. So, yeah, I and I'd, I'd sort of grown a healthy obsession with with being in the gym during my rehabilitation, and cool. um, and I said, well, throughout throughout sort of my my time at Headley, I used to sit there in the evenings on on the laptop looking online at what different amputees around the world had done. And there were four or five, mainly in America, that had prosthetic legs that were up on bodybuilding stages and stuff. You know, like, oh, really? And then I sort of sat my wife down one evening and was like, I, I want to do a bodybuilding show. Um, <laughs> and that's that sort of then spiraled the next chapter. Yeah. You're ne you're, you're, you're the next chapter of your life that... Ended with you being dubbed. I'll need to read these out. I tried to memorize them, but there's that, there's that, there's that, there's that many. Britain's strongest disabled man in 2016 and 2017. Completed in uh, several world's strongest disabled men competitions. 
winner of uh, disabled strongman events at the Arnold Classics in nineteen, uh, sorry, in seventeen and eighteen, and still the record for the world um, world record for the Atlas Stone lift. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It might have been broken now. Obviously, I've been out with it for a few years, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it was. So that's amazing when you say that you, you you got the bug for the gym during your real rehabilitation. I mean, you didn't have like you, you, <laughs> you got you got yourself into some, and you still are in some shape because you still you still train now. Um, but tell us about that. Like you just poured your, you became obsessed with that, didn't you? Really, it just that that was your purpose. That was your focus. And you were going to get there and compete. Yeah, that was about your journey there. Yeah, in, in terms of the bodybuilding, the way I saw it was judges. Obviously, it's it's about opinions and stuff, but judges are going to critique you for what you've got left and not what's missing. So I'm not going to be looked at on stage as he's got a prosthetic leg. I'm going to be for everything else that I am yeah. capable of training and looking after. Um, That's an amazing thought, attitude. Sorry? That's an amazing attitude, you know, just you've got three other healthy limbs there and you're going to make yeah. them, and obviously, you know, just your limbs, your torso and everything else. But there's a lot more to you, even though you've lost one leg, you've still yeah. got a big old body there to build, build on and, and, and turn it into what, what became really impressive, you know? Yeah, no, thank you. And that's... It, I, I saw it that if I if I can stand up in a in a theatre on stage with the lights on me on my own in front of hundreds of people um, and stand there with, with a prosthetic leg confidently be judged be critiqued be criticised um, then I can walk through a shopping centre as an amputee without sort of worrying. Or, or caring for, for yeah. people's views of how I look, um, so it was it was a big, big confidence boost. Um, it was something I only ever intended to do once, just to say I've done it, I've proven yeah. myself. Sim- similar to obviously where my dad had said you you won't last a week in the army, and it was I'm going to prove you wrong. I, I'm positive that when I told some of the lads that I serve with, I'm going to do a bodybuilding show. Um, at that time, it, they were probably like, we'll see. And then I did it. And then it's like, I've proven myself. But off the back of that, I wasn't I wasn't too au okay fait with sort of social media and stuff back then and what goes on. Yeah. And um, my my time on stage in my first competition had caught the eyes of, of someone running um, the national sort of bodybuilding federation in america um so sent me a message and, and invited me over to compete uh in houston Amazing. texas um, i mean you must have been so ecstatic to, to do something that was just basically a once-off to try and help obviously your physical health but your mental health make make you more confident in just going about your future kind of day-to-day life resulted in you getting an invitation uh, yeah it just shows you when you try something new do you know it opens so so many so many doors or it can open so many doors for you you've never known that your life was going to take that route yeah i I couldn't believe the positivity that came off the back of that one show and like you said the the amount of doors and opportunities that opened up for me after that and just obviously that that particular one when i went out to texas 
uh, it was the Phil Heath classics, obviously the, the seven time Mr. Olympia. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and the organizer that had invited me over, uh, I'd done my posing routine on stage in the prelims and it, it called me over. So we got, a, we got a surprise for you this evening. Um, so I've gone back to my hotel for a few hours, um, walked back over to the, the arena in the evening. Um, and then Phil Heath does his, does his guest pose. Obviously at that, that particular arena could, I could seat about four or 5,000 people. It was oh, phenomenal. Um, and then they, they interviewed him on stage and he said he wanted to invite someone that had come all the way from England onto stage with him. And I knew from backstage, <laughs> I was the only English person and oh, I dry and, um, yeah, and he invited me on for like a pose down, and and then that uh, ended up in Flex magazine and Muscle and Fitness, Men's Health, and brilliant. Like, wow, like I didn't expect any of this, and it just took me back to when I was in hospital and how underweight and stuff I looked from sort of being so ill, and yeah, and now I'm stood on a stage in America with one of the greatest ever bodybuilders, um, flexing next to him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's it was incredible and uh, yeah you deserve, uh, it. You deserved it Matt. So that's no no doubt about that you know you definitely deserved that recognition for not only what you, you had went through but the the transformation that you had done it to yourself and there was only you that you could you could only credit yourself we're working so hard to achieve that you know what I mean? It's a, it was amazing. I seen the pictures um, with Will Heath on the stage, and you you could see the smile in your face standing yeah. there, and you're standing there in your thong, all yeah, <laughs> all, all tanned up with these big shiny white teeth. It was such yeah. a it was a it was a nice picture and, and video. It's it's cracking. It was amazing. Yeah, but it just shows you. I mean, there's an important lesson there for people that um that always that that, that maybe want to make that step into trying something new. It doesn't need to be bodybuilding. It doesn't even need to be the gym or fitness. It could be employment, relationship, anything. You know, you just never know what's going to come with something unless you make that first step. Yeah. And it can open so many doors, you know, definitely. Um, I think there's so many people out there that just procrastinate. They just think that every, so they're too scared to make that first step because the next 10 steps that follow, they just see as negative. Um and I think that uh, your story in that regard is, is is genuinely really, really inspirational, totally. Um, Thank you. It's, yeah, it, it's um, it's something I've been privileged to do. And, and it was nice sort of what followed that to, to then have motivated other people with disabilities to step on a bodybuilding stage yeah. and to watch that part of the sport grow um, and to have played like a tiny part in that through being given opportunities like that by people like Phil Heath and, and Lee Thompson who invited me out and to be given that opportunity and for them to see that, that then makes them go, I want to get on a bodybuilding stage. I oh, want to do that. Right. Um, Definitely. Oh, you don't, don't discredit yourself. Yeah, I don't think you played a tiny part in that at all. Do you know, I think you played a, ma a major part in that because like you say, you were Googling, uh, basically amputees over the world to, to find out what other kind of sport or things that people would get up to. And it was all American. Do you know, yeah. if there was other people over here, then you would have found them during your research. But I bet now if someone was to, if something similar happened to, to me, for instance, and I was to Google what you Googled, your name and picture would come up. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's. Well, I mean, that's. Cool. Some people that you've inspired, you know, that that that's. But I think success breeds success in a way, and if you can, uh, it has that domino effect, um, and you're not going to be the last person to become a, a, an amputee in this country, and I think you've done it. Yeah. Uh, gave gave people an option to to see what's possible, and they might they might not need to they reach the levels that you reached as far as your success, but. To be able to get themselves into the gym, knowing that they can turn, try, totally transform their, their body into something so strong and powerful uh, mentally, that's that's amazing. Um, how did it, uh, you then kind of switch? You meant then moved on from bodybuilding to strongman? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, a large part of it came down to being hungry. <laughs> it's, uh, the, the bodybuilding was was draining it took a yeah, lot of, I, I love the side of the discipline and and the the earning the the right to obviously step on stage but yeah. come the end of 2015 um gone into the sort of the, the off-season side of bodybuilding where people can enjoy a bit more food and stuff and yeah. um and i i was enjoying that side of it i'd i'd where I didn't want to turn down any opportunity, I ended up doing nine bodybuilding shows in one year just because I wanted to add all these opportunities and I I said yes to them all. At that point, it was, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it. And um, so coming into 2015, I was I was exhausted, really. Um, so I started enjoying my food a bit more and, and in turn was enjoying being in the gym a bit more. Everything was a little bit heavier than what it was. And... Um, yeah someone that had been following my page was uh responsible for britain's strongest disabled man competition right. and he had sent me a message and said we're, we're doing an open day in kent uh at this strongman gym why don't you come down and sort of try some of the events um and i was really sort of i grew up watching strongman on the television at christmas yeah. loved it and it was yeah. always something i thought I'd, I'd love to have a go on some of that and but I was really skeptical because he said, oh, you know, we compete in wheelchairs. And there was a real stigma during my rehabilitation around, which ended up being to sort of my detriment, I suppose. But if you've got a prosthetic leg, be on it. Um, yeah. So I was very reluctant to go. I, I didn't like being at people's waist height and stuff. And I was like, yeah, of course. At, at the time I saw going into a sport in a wheelchair as a backward step. Um, and my wife said, well, why don't you go down and, and give it a go? You know, keep an open mind. And there were there were loads of blokes there. And and I'd never touched any of that sort of stuff before. Atlas stones, logs, cars, yeah. trucks, all of that. And it's like, wow, I've seen all of this stuff on the telly. Yeah. Um, I think it's such, a, it's such a kind of primitive um way of training do you know it's just yeah. lifting and dragging and pushing and pulling do you know it's pretty yeah. simple movements i think that um i can totally see the attraction with that definitely and i quite liked that obviously bodybuilding is a matter of opinion and no one will ever agree on who should have yeah. won this and that yeah. whereas i liked with strongman there is no gray area the strongest yeah. person over the course of five six events wins and people yeah. congratulate that person um so we we did the events um and we went on to the Atlas Stones and I, I sat down in a wheelchair and um, there was like a free for oil barrel that side and that side. And they said, oh, you, you left or right handed or left handed. So they put the, the first Atlas Stone, it was only about 50 kilos on my left. 
and they showed me how to do it. Obviously, other people who had already been in the sport for a while demonstrated it, and then we got to have a go. Yeah. And I didn't have any tacky or anything, and so I, yeah, I, I sort of rolled it, put it on my chest, put it across, and they said, "Oh, have you you done this before?" I said, "No, I've never, never, never touched one of these." Um, and they said, "Do you want to go up a weight?" So I'm already strapped into the wheelchair, like I, I might as well stay in it. Yeah. So yeah, I'll, I'll try another one, and it went up to like the 70 kilo one. It's like that went across, and they said, "Do you want to try the the 90?" And I was like, oh, "I'll give it a go." And that went over, and I think I did the hundred on my very first day. And the reigning world strongest disabled man was there, who was a Brit, to to show us how to do it. And I'd lifted the same stone that was his heaviest stone. And it was like no, he was pushed off. Yeah, he, he didn't look as supportive at the end. Um, and we did like an interview together for like a, a strongman channel that was there. And they said, "Why don't you you enter Britain's strongest? It's in six weeks' time." I was like, "Oh, maybe." Like I thought, I, there's no way I can compete with these lads in in the space of six weeks. I was like, "I've got none of the kit and equipment." Um, but I phoned my wife on the drive home. So how did it go? And like I, I loved it. Like I, I didn't care at that point about the wheelchair. It made sense because of the, the the amount of weight you were expected to lift. Yeah, it could never support it. Yeah, it. yeah, the prosthetic would just break. Um, yeah. And we got, I got home. We talked about it, and I was like, I'm going to enter. I'm just going to do it. Um, I, I entered for the competition. And I said, like, right now, I don't have to diet anymore. And so I just ate as much as I could for six weeks. It None of it was – it was the polar opposite of bodybuilding. I just – ice creams, burgers, pizzas. <laughs> Calories. Yeah, everything I could eat, I was eating. Um, the physique had completely disappeared in six weeks. And, um, and I just trained as heavy as I could. And I tried to pick people's brains in the gym and yeah. – just improvise a little bit and we turned up on the day of the competition and um there were 23 of us and i'm looking around and people are warming up and i'd i'd recognize one of the lads from the wheelchair class in bodybuilding and i was like i know darren like he's a really strong bloke like i'll watch what he does i'll pick his brains throughout the day if i can get close to what he's doing i'll, I'll have had a good day and i thought top 10 i'll be ecstatic um and then it got to the first event uh, and it was a truck pull and i i was excited as i oh, like a, i'm gonna put oh, a truck it's um, an iconic event that isn't it yeah it's just just brute strength yeah um, and because it was the first event they went alphabetical and they got to smith called me up and it started raining i was like that's that's not a good start <laughs> um and then my two boys they're only sort of i think four and five at a time, three and five, something like that. They're only little. And they come and stood next to me. I was I was sat down getting harnessed up because it's all just upper body. So you just pull it towards you. Yeah. Um, and they'd made this banner and stuff and they were sort of cheering me on. And at that point, that could have been about five trucks. Like I was pulling it. it, yeah. it was, I felt just incredible with them there. Um, yeah, that's amazing. And then I pulled it. And I got the quickest time, and it's like my very first ever strongman event, and I'm sitting top of the pile on Britain's strongest. Um, and then I was like, "Wow!" Like it was probably a fluke. Like, <laughs> and then the next event went, um, 
I think it was the log and I was sort of, I think third or fourth and I, my shoulder really sort of let me down there with the gunshot. Um, and then we went on to the Hercules hold. So it was holding two train sleepers. So around about 80, 90 kilos each hand on chains for as long as you can. Um, and I, I set a record there, uh, just over four minutes. I was holding it for, um, second place was about a minute and a half. Um, when I was, I when I was listening, when, I, when I've been listening, I actually forgot, like, obviously your legs amputated, but you actually forgot about the shoulder injury. So you think mm -hmm. that you're only kind of, um, disadvantage is the fact that you, you you've only got one leg but yeah. you've you've got a gunshot wound to the shoulder and the whole yeah. competition is just solely based on your upper body strength and yeah. there's you breaking breaking records or setting records <laughs> and then coming first place in every event with a gunshot wound to the shoulder yeah because it's, it's one of those things because visually obviously in a in a t-shirt and a strong man no one knows about yeah. it yeah, um, and no one there knew me yeah. so nobody sort of um not appreciated but nobody knew that yeah, of the, the, the shoulder predominant ex movements i would struggle with and then we went on to a car deadlift and it was a fiat punto um and i then i went and won that event and um the atlas stones i just had to finish i had to finish all five to win um and it was like oh i really like this one like when we practiced it and I went and got all five stones up and it finished. And it's like, wow, like I'm, I'm Britain's strongest disabled. And obviously they call you out from 23rd all the way up to first. Really? I'm stood there and it's like, there's two of us left. And then it's like, wow. So I qualified for the worlds. And I'd, I'd said to my wife, like maybe in about three years time, when I've gained a bit of experience, it'd be nice to try and push for maybe winning something, maybe try and get to the world's strongest and, in my first competition, I was off to the Worlds. Um, and it was uh, from there, I then went and bought logs, Atlas stones, ropes. Like, just I went through yourself right in it. Yeah. I went yeah. to strongman gyms. Um, I got to, I went to train with like Lawrence Chalet. And it was like anyone that I can pick the brains of and learn from, I want to. Um, do you think that was a, a, a kind of? Do you think that was a better moment for you than uh, your bodybuilding career? I, th I think um, I enjoyed it more. I loved competition. Obviously, being on yeah. the football pitch growing up, it's competition. Um, being in the boxing ring, it's competition. You you have to give your your best in that moment. And whereas the bodybuilding, the hard work's done all the way up to the day. Yeah. Um, Whereas the strongman, the hard work's done up to the day and then the hard work is on the day. Um, but I quite liked, like, I've earned this. Um, yeah. It's not four judges have felt sorry for me or anything like... No, of course, it's, it's totally objective. It's based on your results and no one can ever argue with that. Yeah, yeah. So, and I, so I liked that side of it. Um, but um, that, when you asked earlier about sort of those low moments obviously I was on such a high after winning that. And then, um, two weeks after that, one of the lads, the lad who had sort of clamped off my artery and, and sort of played a big, big role in keeping me alive. Um, we, uh, we were from obviously different regiments. So 
I seeked him out for ages. Obviously, the, the MOD, because of the sort of the nature of how my injuries happened, were reluctant to pass on people's contact details. I just wanted to thank yeah. them. Um, yeah. And it took me a couple of years to sort of track down the people online that had been there that day. Um, yeah. And I'd found one lad and, and he was in um, near Swansea. And so he'd phoned me straight away. I'd sent him a message saying, like, obviously, this is how I know you. Phoned me straight away. Drove that night from Swansea to Milton Keynes. No, I'm not we really. sat up all night talking. I'd, I think I hugged him for about 10 minutes outside the front of the house. Oh, really? and, um, yeah, I must have said thank you, like, in excess of about 100 times. And no, no wonder. Children. And um, obviously, my wife got to sort of say thank you properly. And we just... Again, he was an older person, so he was again that sort of that father figure that I, I just sort of gazed at him. I suppose like, yeah, I had nothing but admiration for him. Uh, just a massive inspiration for you. Yeah, and we plus the fact that what what plus the fact that he had looked not only looked after you, he, he had he had saved your life. Yeah, yeah, you know I mean? it, and that's the thing is just in that moment the bits I remember and stuff. He was one of the faces that was there reassuring yeah. me and, and just talking to me and making light of it. And yeah. um so we'd struck up like a really good friendship. Obviously, I, I owed him and, and the others like my, my life, but there was just seemed to be a bond. Um so we'd we'd talk on the phone a lot and um and he had like so much sort of belief in me and obviously with the strongman, he had friends that were competing in strongman in Wales and so he'd be sending me advice and and getting people to contact me with with sort of different advice and stuff and just went above and beyond and then uh yeah two weeks after i won britain's he went and took his own life um jesus man and that i did it like that just because he would always sort of phone and ask how i was but never really talk about the same back and you, you wouldn't really get much um and he he was medically discharged from the forces with with post traumatic stress. Um, things like my injury had triggered other sort of things that had yeah. happened in his service, and um, he never really. Obviously, we were from different regiments. I had nothing but support from the Grenadiers, and he had no support at all from the the Royal Welsh, and just was in a a real sort of low place. And um, yeah, that really sort of like cut me up and but rather than sort of processing it and I, I talked at his funeral and stuff and um and got got to know his, his mum and dad and his, his dad had been a Welsh guard so it was like just he then felt like a connection with the family as well and um and rather than sort of processing it because I had the worlds coming up and it was like I'm gonna use this as fuel and throw myself into all of this um but what i found over the sort of coming three four years was that it i'd i'd take myself away before an event so say you'd start a strongman competition with a truck pull yeah then you'd have a break then you'd go into a log press a break then into a deadlift and and, and the day would go on like that and i'd take myself away two or three athletes before i was due on and just bring all of that back to the surface and use it. Um, yeah. Put all of that into the event. 
and then just be on a, a real come down, um, like a real low, and then yeah. do it all again. And it got harder and harder to just sort of enjoy what I was doing. I was doing it all out of nothing but anger and, yeah. and upset and stuff. And the the Arnold's, the second time I won the Arnold's, um, I'm in a hotel room on my own half an hour after like lifting the trophy, just sat on my own. And it's like, this, this is, yeah, this is this isn't what I was sort of meant to get out of it. Um, yeah. And yeah, it all sort of started to just bubble away. And obviously it was becoming more apparent at home, but like most sort of squaddies at, at that time. And, and now every time my wife sort of said about, you know, you should sort of speak to someone. I took that as, um, bit of an insult i suppose to yeah. my a weakness yeah yeah or it's yeah, a weakness. yeah it's just that it's just a i can aim some a man thing isn't it it's a male thing that how dare you <laughs> how dare yeah. you call me weak sort of thing yeah when, especially to be doing strong man but yeah. here i am at home being called weak which I, yeah. I i wasn't but obviously that's how i took it and um but i knew i knew i wasn't right and i I was doing the strongman and I was doing sort of public speaking and talking in schools and stuff and telling really? everyone how, how sort of, um, wonderful life was, I, you know, since losing a leg and then getting in my car and just breaking down. And, and then I started to have some empathy with what he'd done. And, and it was, like I'd, that's the point I was getting to is like, there would be a particular sort of bridge on the M1 and I'd, I'd visualize it every day just put my foot down and go straight in and it it stemmed from obviously what had happened to spence but equally like i'd had where i'd i'd obviously taken strongman so serious i'd put on a lot of weight i'd, I'd gone up to, to 20 stone without the prosthetic even on right. so um i'd sort of ballooned in weight so i was putting a lot of stress on the leg the leg had obviously sort of ballooned and I'd had a sciatic nerve operation that had not worked at all and made it a lot more painful. So I, I had the weight that was causing issues for me to walk full stop, the sciatic nerve that was causing issues, losing Spence that I hadn't properly dealt with. And um, it was just all bubbling away at the same time. Um, and then, yeah, we, we went on... on uh, from the outside strongman was going fantastic i'd obviously i'd, I'd won britain's back to back yeah. the arnold's back to back like um i was due to go out and do the world's strongest again in norway and i really sort of thought this is the year i can win this yeah. i'd i'd worked on all of my sort of weaker events and thought if i can get on the predominantly shoulder ones if i can get middle of the pack but win the ones that i'm good at yeah. I'll, I'll be in with a chance um so i really that side of it, I felt comfort, but I was getting no enjoyment out of it at all. It was just a means to vent. Um, I had and, built up anger and frustration. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just I wasn't nice to sort of be around in any sense because I was using my anger in strong man, but then it wasn't sort of like, right, now I've got that out of my system, now I feel all right. Then it was just carrying on and carrying yeah. on. And, um, 
Do a total yeah. cycle of emotions as well. Do you know a vicious cycle of, of emotions and obviously still having so much trauma to deal with both your own trauma and losing losing Spence as well. Do you know every time you were you were trained for a competition, use use that anger and then you were winning it or competing in it. And then you would have a little bit of an off, and then you had to start that cycle again. You know, your emotions were just all over the place. No time to actually work on them at all. Yeah, yeah, and just you know, you'd you'd get to the end, and you'd the Arnold, for example. You know, they announce it in reverse order, and you've won, and you're like, I feel nothing. Really? And yeah, obviously now to look back and be in a good place, I'm like, wow, I competed against the best in the world. Yeah. And what, like, now I can appreciate what a position I was in at the time. But then it was like, I just want to get out of here. Um, yeah. That's it. Half an hour later, I'm sat in my room on my own because obviously the family, it was school time. So no one yeah. had come out with me. Um, I was like, what am I doing? Um, and then, yeah, we'd, we'd gone on a family holiday to Florida. Um, and there was, there was one particular day uh, so that I didn't sort of ruin the holiday. I didn't go on the prosthetic leg. I went in a wheelchair, which I hated. Yeah. I accepted it in strongman because there was a purpose to it. But I hated um, being sort of pushed and wheeled everywhere oh, and just you, you lost your independence. You know, at least with your prosthetic, you can you can you can get about in crutches. Um, yeah. But uh, if you're getting pushed about, you do. It's a it's a massive uh, dent to your confidence and independence, definitely. And, and little things like being able to, obviously you're on your dream holiday in Florida and being able to hold the children's hands and stuff, whereas yeah. I'm in a wheelchair. Um, so it was just things like that. It's like, this, this isn't how I dreamt it would be. Um, and then there was, there was a particular day at a water park. Um, the family had all gone down the slides and I'm in the wheelchair. And then the lifeguard says, I can't go down the slide. And then I'm sat in like 40 degree heat on the top of this like slide in a wheelchair, nothing but stairs or a slide to get down. Um, and I spent about 45 minutes at the top of this top of this slide. My wife eventually sort of realized I was up there, yeah. came all the way up, came to get me. And then when we got to the bottom, um, I was like, I want to go back to the hotel room. Yeah. And we got there, and that was when I just sort of said, I need I need help um and i and then i was honest with her and i said i, I don't want to be here anymore i said not yeah. not just florida just in general and um so that did that, did that come as a massive shock to her or did, did she see the decline in you anyway she saw it and it was more relief that i'd seen it in myself or just yeah, admitted good. it yeah. um so we got straight on the phone to my my regiment uh so we have a a retired warrant officer who now works as a casualty officer so they're uh they're your go-to if you need yeah. housing adaptations or anything like that any support from the charities and I said to him i i need some help and by the time we got back from florida i had funding for counseling sessions i had a counselor booked like and i could get started straight away yeah. While you were in that mindset that you realised that the problem was there, and you were just yeah. you were up, you were up for getting getting help. Yeah, yeah. Then it became it was bigger than just me. Then it was like I'm affecting the whole family. Yeah. Um, so, but that at that moment, I said I'm I'm going to pull out of Norway, going to pull out of the worlds. Um, 
I need to obviously lose weight. So I'm going to start once we get back from Florida because I'm still going to enjoy all the like the food out there. But once once we get back, then I'm gonna I'm gonna start losing this weight. Uh, hopefully the leg will sort of feel better uh, as a result of it. I'll pull out a strong man so I haven't got the stress of getting ready for the worlds. I'll start the counselling and it was like this is the lowest point so it's only uphill from here um and then yeah that's when that's when sort of had a checklist of things like if i can tick one thing off that's positive then the next week and and then it sort of snowballed into more and more positive starting um and yeah we we sat together and wrote wrote a list of all the things that i missed doing all the things that i sort of no longer enjoyed doing and the things that obviously came up because I wanted to be so professional I'd I'd almost cut off and killed off any sort of social life so I wasn't yeah. sort of seeing any of the lads to serve with like obviously when you're in in the regiment you you're going out for beers most nights and stuff and yeah. just yeah like every day like I loved I loved that camaraderie and the I enjoyed being in the West End of London most nights and drinking yeah, all that side of it. Um, and I'd lost all of that. And so I'd lost all the sort of social aspect of my life because bodybuilding and strongman, you're an individual and everybody that's competing wants to beat you. So you're not a team, you're not a part of something, you're, you're an individual. Um, so I never really liked that aspect of it. I, I always liked in the forces, you were part of something. Um, you had a you had a group. You had a family. Yeah, um, of course, yeah, you, you didn't have that in these individual sports. Yeah. Um, and I said, like, I, I need to start sort of seeing mates and stuff again. And um, and I said, like, I really miss playing football. Um, so I contacted a few local. It was um, like walking football teams in the area yeah. obviously it's meant to be for over 50s i just contacted i said look you know i'm an amputee like would you mind if i came down and they they welcomed me down and that was like the first bit i was socializing with people on the football pitch off the football yeah. pitch i was starting to you know get up a mobile a bit more starting to realize that actually I can spend time off my prosthetic. I don't have to be in a wheelchair. I can be on crutches. And it's like, yeah. I was started losing weight. And it's like, actually, everything is starting yeah, to yeah, positive. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. yeah. And obviously, you started, you then moved from obviously the walking football to, to um, joining that you then found out there was clubs out there, like the professional clubs. A lot of them have uh, an amputee team, basically. Is yeah. that right? yeah yeah so i originally the football was just going to be a social thing to get me out and yeah. about but with me nothing ever stays <laughs> fun for very long <laughs> like you wanted to be the best at that as well <laughs> yeah it's like can i take this a step further like what else yeah. can i do and how far can i push this and um yeah i'd, I'd been looking online and and the local the, the closest club that had an amputee football team was Peter reunited. So I, I contacted them. Um, and they had a fixture coming up uh, in London. They were playing Arsenal. They said, why don't you come down, you know, come and see what the sport's all about. Come and watch. I was like, oh, okay. 
like you know bring your stuff just in case mm. like so you can have a bit of a sort of kick about um and then yeah turned up and the lads were like one player short and it's like do you fancy playing it's like oh uh i'll give it a go i was still in comparison to the other footballer there was still strong man size and weight and yeah stuff. still a big boy i could barely move um everything was cramping up it was pouring down with rain and um then one of our players got injured in the first couple of minutes so we were another player down and lost the game like heavily but i come off the pitch and we was in a changing room and it was like i miss this i miss yeah. like this bloke's having a i've been part of a team yeah um and then yeah i drove home and uh, normally driving home is my time to sort of reflect and it's like if i dedicate myself to this like i did the strongman the bodybuilding if i lose the weight if i start get myself on football pitches every day and practicing i can only get better uh so i i did that i sort of shifted the weight throughout that season um and by the end of that season uh we we won the league and i was voted player of the year um so, what is it with you what is it with you starting something that you've never done before yeah, and, then just, and, then, and then just blowing the competition out of the way i'm surprised you have any mates left because you just yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean the, the player of the year meant a lot because that was voted for by the other players yeah so that really meant a lot at that time to know that i'd earned their respect um and i'd found somewhere where i settled in um and obviously they'd seen how much I dedicated myself throughout the season yeah. to trying to get better and and equally learning from them just as I did in in strongman and the army and um little things like taping up the cuffs of your crutches so your forearms don't slip out while you're playing and right, okay and your crutches good. slightly shorter so that you you know your shoulders aren't taking so much stress and yeah. it was those are all things I could learn from people like I've always always kept an open mind and always been willing to learn from people um and even though it was football it's like this is this is amputee football I, I, yeah, I it's from them. um so yeah it was nice to find somewhere where i felt like this is a fit in here yeah. um, and i like team mentality winning yeah. or losing winning and losing together do you know you're all yeah. you're all in it together working hard for each other um no it's a great it's a great thing um, how did the chelsea how did chelsea come about then uh so as as i stayed with peterborough for sort of three four seasons um i'd i'd worked my way up there as well um and the manager at the time was a copper um and he was taking on a new role and sort of pulled me to one side and sort of said because I'd, I'd done my coaching badges as well um whilst i was still in the army uh just for later in life i thought i was yeah. thought it was something i'd like to do one day yeah. um and he said like we'd like you to sort of take over the team and i i said oh, I'm, I'm not ready to sort of stop playing yet um i'll i'll take over if i can play as well um and they were like, well, we need to find out from the league and stuff. And got back to me and said, you know, that's that's fine. So the last season with Peter, I ended up taking over. Um, and yeah, really, really enjoyed it. We 
we won the league uh, that season as well. But of course he did. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because of um, obviously the, the lockdown and stuff that had happened, a lot of clubs were cutting funding for their their disability teams yeah. and stuff. So um, Peterborough were one of those. Obviously, being a, a lower league club, yeah. the, their disability football wasn't so much a priority. So we didn't really have. The, the kit we needed we didn't really have any training facilities um we didn't really have any sort of the in comparison to the other amputee teams we didn't have sort of substitutes jackets and track suits and things in the colder months to to keep you warm and dry like um and peterborough weren't obviously prepared to sort of fund those sort of things they were things yeah. we had to just buy ourselves and for the squad it was a lot of young players and students and stuff so couldn't really justify all of that so we had a we had a meeting and I said how how does everybody feel like if if we can keep this squad together um about approaching other clubs and seeing if they'll they'll take us on and everyone was in agreement that yeah. we wouldn't lose anybody no one would no one really had a particular affiliation to to Peter United so it was as long as we stay as a team yeah. like what you can do so i sent out about 40 different emails uh to the likes of sort of west ham watford leicester like all different ones and i said to my wife i'm i'm going to send one to chelsea just on the off chance <laughs> like i said you know what's the worst that can happen like most of them hadn't got back to me i said you know i'm not expecting a response but um and then a couple of days later, we were actually in a cab. We were on the way to Stamford Bridge. Um, we were going to watch Chelsea Liverpool. And my phone rang and I answered it. And it was this bloke that had picked up my email from Chelsea. And he's like, I've read your email and we're really interested. Um, yeah, really. I was like, I'm actually on my way to the bridge now. Um, and he was like, oh, well, we'll, you know, we'll chat next week. And I was like, and I said to my wife, I was like, that was Chelsea. Like, they're interested. Um, and then we had like a Zoom call and stuff, and then another one, and then another one where they could talk to the players. I put together like a wish list, um, so obviously training facilities. Yeah. I, I thought if we're going to do it, do it properly, and could we get a junior program set up? So for children that are amputees, can we offer something for those? Yeah. Um, and they agreed to all of it, and it was like it's actually happening. Um, That's amazing. And then the league were happy. They were supporting us um, to obviously make the switch from cutting ties with Peterborough and becoming Chelsea. And we thought it's a, it's a great thing for the league, more positive exposure. Um, and then the club organised for our first training session and all of our training sessions were going to be at Cobham. Um, and yeah, I mean, I the drive down, I was so so happy and then you, yeah, you must have in, been surreal yeah you're pulling into that training ground and it's like home of chelsea football club everything what a confidence boost for the for the the team in general do you know and a, a, such a, a a level of acceptance there that not no no is it the team they're not getting like treated as in second class in any way they're getting the use of the top facilities the, yeah, the first team use you're getting the best of the kit. You're getting basically accepted as part of Chelsea's family, Chelsea's uh, football club family. You know, it must have, it must have worked wonders 
for, for you and your teammates in, in terms of uh, how confident they would have been um, in progressing yeah. in MPT football in general. A much higher profile as well, than, than no disrespect to Peterborough, but having Chelsea yeah. support amputee football as a sport must have opened doors for so many people in different areas as well. And that's a, yeah, just to, we, we were able to attract three or four players that weren't even aware of the sport before. Yeah. Um, and so to then obviously have the luxury to say, come to Cobham, obviously that in itself is a, is a wow factor. And, yeah. um, and Chelsea was sort of adamant that, you know, all the teams are equal. Um, so you were made to feel like a part of Chelsea football club. Yeah. Um, and everything that because I'd had the season prior sort of coaching with with Peterborough and, and playing as well at the same time um I was sort of being leaned on for advice and feedback and so it was really nice that they yeah. they valued what we thought as a team and how they could better it and and sort of be more inclusive and um and then that led to me uh being given the captaincy for the season as well which yeah, being able to lead Chelsea out as as the captain was like I've I've made like that that was the moment where I was like to some people they they might not understand it but I was glad I'd lost a leg at that point. Yeah, uh, I understand. Yeah, uh, it was just like obviously my boys are both sort of Chelsea fans like my wife is and it's like you know for my boys to go into school and say my dad's the Chelsea captain, but, <laughs> you know and. It just, yeah, the no, smile was, was massive, and um, and then as the season got on, uh, I'd because I'd enjoyed the coaching so much the previous season, I'd enrolled on my next UEFA course, um, and I'd been doing that as the season was going on, so it was a four month course, and then as that was going on, I was like, I originally it was going to be something to fall back on in a couple of years' time. And as the course was going on and you're sort of you're, you're you're taking on more and more and you're learning the game more and getting a different perspective and understanding of it it's like actually like i've helped set up chelsea it's in a good place it's got a good strong squad it's got yeah. obviously children coming along to attend i've left something in a better place than what i found it almost um yeah. and that's when i started to think I uh I'm ready to go into coaching now like this is this is what I want to do like I'd I'd been able to even if I'd only ever played one game for Chelsea like I'd led Chelsea out as the club captain yeah. um it was like that that was the the pinnacle for me so anything beyond that was a bonus um and then yeah I I just sort of got really stuck into the the coaching side of it um and then yeah, made the made the decision that that would be my my final season, and I'd I'd pursue the coaching side of it now. You're now you're now a coach at MK Dons, is that right? Yeah, yeah, I was, I was very fortunate. So obviously they're the, the club closest to us, um, and my my mentor, my coach developer on my UEFA course, um, used to work in the academy there, and we had a real sort of good relationship and um he it was nice he spoke very sort of highly of of me as a as a coach and as a person and um i i said 
basically he'd ignited that sort of fire in me to want to go into coaching and make a yeah. career. Um, I said, I've bounced from sport to sport. Whereas I think now, now's the time, like I said, I really want to work with children. Um, I said, like, I love children's enthusiasm for football and they're just the fearlessness and the fun and the passion yeah. that they have for the game. And I was like, that's what I want to be around now. And, and he put in a good word for me at the Dons, um, got me an interview. And I, I did say, I said, although I'm disabled myself, I said, I, I, I'm keen to not be pigeonholed into only coaching disability yeah, players. Mm -hmm. I'd like yeah. to sort of, obviously, when I did the courses, I did them alongside everybody else. And yeah. I said, I'd, I'd like to be in the mainstream side of the game. So they, yeah, they offered me a role working with their their under 11s um in their sort of development pathway which is their um step sort of prior to academy level football brilliant um you love it i absolutely love it like it's you can it's, tell. Uh, yeah it's 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 so different and it's maybe what i needed obviously on a football pitch i've always had a bit of an edge a bit of a fire in me sort of when i was growing up that was always my release um yeah. and i always felt always felt sort of safe on a football pitch so i always sort of played with a little bit more uh yeah a little bit more sort of aggression that's where i could yeah. let it all out i suppose um and that's never really left me on the football pitch so i i played like that throughout um but whereas to coach 10 and 11 year old boys is is it's sort of it's found a softer side of me, uh, which only really my children have brought out in me before. Whereas to be on a football pitch every day, but to be around children, it's just, I love yeah, it. It's amazing. No, I'm yeah. so glad. I mean, I think that obviously we'll, we'll bring the kind of start to bring the podcast to a conclusion now, but I think basically. I think well, it's, we're at an hour and fifty minutes, and I think you've yeah, smiled. You've smiled. You've smiled for about an hour and forty-five minutes of them, and, and it's amazing to see. Obviously, your um, this podcast is kind of centered around resilience, and certainly, I don't think yet I've spoke to anyone that has shown as much as you, Mark. And I mean that genuinely to go through what you went through, both in your early years. Um, and then your disappointment um, with your family life and school life, and then it reached the, the the army, the career that you wanted, the career that was actually an escape and, and a place of safety for you, uh, then almost cost you your life. Do you know what I mean? But you bounce back time after time, time and time again, um, through your like positivity, your determination, your compassion as well, and now you've basically succeeded in every single thing that you've set your mind to do, which is, is amazing. And now you're passing on that same enthusiasm, and knowledge and passion, uh, not only in your own kids, and but the, also the kids of other parents as well through your coaching. So it's amazing. Um, I've got a question for you. Would you change what happened to you? I've given the choice. No, no. no. Like I... The experiences I've had since I lost my leg. What one of the even taking the experiences away, obviously as as a serving soldier, you spend seven, eight, nine months of the year away, whether that's in mm. Kenya, Afghanistan, 
like even Brecon and you're always away um and I always saw so many lads who missed so much of their children growing up um mm. and the biggest positive for me above everything else is that as an amputee it's allowed me to be a, a dad um yeah. I've sort of played a big part in my boys sort of upbringing and you know I can go to their football matches I can pick them up from school and um like they'll know they'll grow up knowing me and and hopefully sort of obviously some of my traits will sort of rub off on them more than if I was just at the end of a phone in another country yeah, for course, man. You, you'd yeah. planned obviously you'd planned to to serve your full term in the military um, yeah. and I've been in the military just now so your life has totally taken a, a, a such a different uh, projectile basically you know what I mean but uh, I'm glad I'm glad you said that I'm glad you said that you wouldn't you wouldn't change it for the world um, honestly, I look forward to releasing this because I think it's going to be popular and so many people will take inspiration from, from hearing your story. Um, and you tell it so well. You tell it with a good bit of humour and stuff as well. Um, and it's dark. It's, it's <laughs> so dark in places. Um, but I found myself listening and kind of smiling through it weirdly as well for some for, for some strange reason. But um, Mark, thanks very much for joining us, mate. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. No, thank you, like I said, for asking me. I always always find it humbling that people want to speak to me. So, um, yeah, no, thank you, mate. Like, Obviously, I've got a lot of admiration for what you've done as well. So it was a, oh, it was a pleasure to get the chance to talk to you, mate. Good, man. Cheers, Mark. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Thank you, mate. Yeah.